Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. We have with us today, Chuck DeRoss, who's a partner at the law firm Morrison Forster. And Chuck, we are so excited to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. You bet. You have a very interesting background, and I want to take just a few minutes to tell the audience um, about you and some of the work that you've done, and then let you tell us how you, how you landed in that spot. Um, so Chuck, he serves as Morrison Forster's global co-chair of their investigations in white-collar defense practice. He's also the co-leader of the firm's Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FCPA. Uh, for those of you for shorthand who don't know that, and global anti-corruption practice. Interestingly, he's been dubbed Mr. FCPA in the Washington Post, so he spends a lot of his time working on corruption matters. He focuses on that, internal corporate investigations, compliance counseling, and many other things. He previously served as the deputy chief in the fraud section of the criminal division of the Department of Justice. And that's where he led the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act FCPA unit. And he was also in charge of all of the FCPA investigations, prosecutions, and resolutions in the US. He's recognized internationally for a leading role that he played in developing and implementing the government's FCPA enforcement strategy. And he's widely credited with developing uh, the current enforcement regime where they've come out, the DOJ has with an updated uh, resource guide now, but you really were the principal of drafting the first one, which the second one was based on. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's a very, very important resource guide for the industry. Um, and he's also served as the DOJ's principal representative for the organization or to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD Working Group on Bribery for many years and helped develop their good practice guidance on internal controls, ethics, and compliance. Interestingly, before he started his career as a litigation associate at an international, although you did start your career as a litigation associate at an international law firm, and then you joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in um, Southern District of Florida. And there you prosecuted a lot of white collar cases, bank frauds, embezzlements, mail and wire fraud, money laundering, securities fraud, and trademark violations. So I have to start by asking you, what, what haven't you done? <laughs> You've done a lot. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I mean, how I got to the current position is in in, uh, in large part just sort of a, a willingness to follow opportunities. Um, so, you know, I, I always talk to uh, um, you know, students that I teach uh, about you know, just being open to other options or, or always having a plan B. Uh, because, you know, I knew that I wanted to go uh, and be a prosecutor at some point. <clears throat> But I really was sort of open to where that would be and what it would be about and, and what, I would, what I would work on. And so I first went to Miami because uh, it seemed like a great opportunity. And it really was a fantastic place to be a prosecutor. I mean, it's a, as, as we used to refer to it, a, a target-rich environment. There was a lot going on in Miami. <laughs> and there's guns and drugs and bank robberies and, 
and, and homicides. And then there are all kinds of white collar cases and fraud, uh, whether it's bank or, or mail fraud, uh, wire fraud. I mean, there's all kinds of people involved in Ponzi schemes and Medicare fraud. And the list kind of goes on and on. And so it was a very interesting place to be a prosecutor. I learned a, a great deal. Uh, and then after five years there, I, I moved up to D.C., uh, and I'd never even heard of the FCPA, which is kind of incredible if you think about it now. Yeah, um, for Mr. FCPA, who had never heard of it when he started. <laughs> right. Humble beginnings. And so everybody has I, to start somewhere. <laughs> so yes, I mean, and I, I had come up to DC from uh from from Miami with the idea that I was gonna be doing a public corruption case. And uh and ultimately by the time I got there, the case that I was coming up to work on, uh for reasons I don't bother people getting into, like uh, sort of went away and was going to be handled by different folks within the department. And I got handed a new case and they said, are you interested in handling a case involving a congressman from New Orleans uh, who had gotten uh, caught with $90,000 in cash in his freezer? And I was like, yeah, of course, yes, I'm very interested. It sounds interesting. And what I didn't realize at the time, but found out quickly thereafter was, it was actually both a domestic corruption case and a foreign bribery case. So the cash in the freezer was actually supposed to be delivered by the congressman to the then vice president of Nigeria uh, to secure a business deal. Uh, and, and thus became this case that was the first case in history in which an only case in history in which a member of Congress has been charged with an FCPA violation. Uh, and, uh, and so I got on that case and I, you know, for the next couple of years worked on this uh, both domestic and foreign bribery case. Uh, and then ultimately when I was done with that, I took over uh, the unit uh, and then let it uh, as, as you indicated before. Wow, very interesting. So during that time from when you started um, and, and now you've become Mr. FCPA, according to the Washington Post, tell us about the changes that you've seen in the environment in corporate America around ethics and compliance and risk management and governance, because I, my sense is it's really changed over the years. I'd like your views on that. I agree with you. Um, and, and it's interesting. So, you know, I had a, you know, a pretty significant background in investigations and uh -huh. criminal enforcement. And I'll be honest, I didn't know that much about compliance uh, when I first got to Washington, D.C. and I moved to the fraud section. In many ways, I was being educated by the companies that were coming in to talk to us about their own compliance programs. And you, you, sort of, you learn by osmosis and you start to realize you know, who's got a really good program and who doesn't. And then over time, during that sort of seven years that I was working, uh, doing it almost exclusively FCPA cases, I really saw a dramatic change. I mean, a fundamental change in both the importance of compliance the exposure of compliance within organizations, uh, and uh, and and I think the the sort of the community of uh, compliance professionals developing in their own way in terms of expertise and expectations, uh, and and really sort of coming into their own. And 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 just to give you some examples, I mean, early days when we were speaking to companies, and when we were speaking to companies, we were talking about things that happened years before. So mm -hmm. so things that are like sort of mid 2000s, we're having conversations with companies about, and you know, they wouldn't have hotlines, they wouldn't follow up on investigations. I remember there was a, a letter to a CEO uh, about some very serious allegations of misconduct within the company. 
And the awkward exchange we had with the company, you know, when I was at DOJ and when we were asking them, well, what happened? What was the, what was the outcome? Were the allegations substantiated? What, what did you do? And they said, oh, uh, we need to look into that. We're not sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. And then months passed by and we kept coming out like, what's going on? Turns out nothing was ever done ever. And there, you know, it, there's both process issues as well as judgment issues. You know, there's sort of focus and bandwidth. There's experience and expertise. And, and what I saw was whether it was hotlines or third party due diligence or internal accounting controls or training, all the tone from the top, these things which were previously not a big focus in uh, many companies, some, but not many, uh, really changed dramatically. And you suddenly got exposure of compliance issues and the importance of compliance at the board level. That board started to recognize that this was you know, not just something that they had oversight over, but that they needed to actually be educated about, have input into. Um, they started to learn the kinds of information that they should be asking the, um, the C-suite for. Uh, there were expectations that were starting to be delivered from the top. And once that happened, you know, you certainly got the most senior managers in the company uh, in, involved and engaged. And I really saw uh, sort of a dramatic shift in terms of the way that companies were addressing it. And part of that also then, what I at least started to see from my vantage point was that there weren't a lot of compliance professionals uh, at, at that time with that level of experience and expertise. And it started to develop and people started to compare notes and they were benchmarking against each other. And you know, compliance professionals were picking up the phone and calling others at other sort of peer companies or or right. you know, maybe companies in the same geography. And they started to share experiences and the like, and the enforcement started to drive the compliance. Uh, it was interesting when we met with some compliance officers later on as we were working on the FCPA resource guide. Uh -huh. And I remember we, we set up a series of meetings and I thought that we were gonna get a lot of criticism from the compliance officers. I thought that they would come in and they say, oh, you guys are beating us up too much and, and uh, you're being unfair, too tough on companies. And the, I got the opposite re reaction, which is keep going. Uh, each case you bring highlights the importance of compliance within our own organization, <clears throat> the individual accountability, because it is a criminal law and people went to prison and still do for violating it, um, gets everybody's attention in a way that you know other kinds of enforcement don't. Um, and so it highlights and, and makes relevant for us uh, the compliance programs within our own organizations, and it helps us get resources and exposure. It changes the way we, we engage with the business. They want to actually be educated on some of these issues, as opposed to seeing us as the sort of the department of business avoidance. And so, so there were some fundamental shifts. It doesn't mean that it's, um, it's even uh, through, throughout industries or, or across uh, companies. Uh, there's still a number of companies and you see big enforcement actions even, you know, in the past year, right. uh, you know, the, the, so not every organization is the same and has embraced it, but I will say that it went from sort of zero to 60 in a very significant way. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about it, but I then think uh, the U S in particular started to export this um, approach to compliance, the professionalism of it, uh, the importance of it, the, the systemic approach to it. Right. Uh, to many companies uh, across the world. And it's made a profound change, not just in corporate, the corporate space, 
I actually think it's made a, a profound change and ha continues to in communities around the globe. And you see that in Brazil and other places. How do you think the uh, dramatic changes that we've just talked about here have affected maybe the frontline business managers? Well, I think, uh, so, so the answer is uh, it depends. Uh, and so I think some, some business managers who've embraced compliance uh, can use it to their advantage. They use it uh, if they have KPIs uh, or other uh, metrics by which they uh, uh, judge their, their own uh, people that report to them. Uh, it can incentivize people to engage in compliance, reward good behavior, potentially discipline bad behavior. Yeah. Uh, it gives people the, an ability, uh, often if you're a salesperson also, yes. uh, to differentiate your company from others, uh, that we're the kind of company you want to work with. Uh, we're not going to be the company that's going to wind up uh, in a newspaper article that's going to embarrass you or your organization for being a part uh, partner with us. Uh, and then it can also be used as both a sword and a shield. Uh, it, you know, in terms of a shield, you know, many companies, large multinationals, have come to us and told us, you know, uh, that uh, that they are both when I was at DOJ and in private practice that they can you they'll wear sort of a, a company logoed shirt when they go to certain government offices because they have developed a reputation as you know, companies that don't engage in certain misconduct that you know may be sought out uh, and they are able to use it. I remember when I was at DOJ, a very well-known uh, company uh, to everybody who's going to hear this podcast, they will have heard of this company. Th they say that they were able to go in and avoid uh, you know, uh, solicitations for bribes uh, by having a reputation as a company that just simply wouldn't do it. And it protected their employees in many ways uh, by saying, look, I don't, you know, I, I can't do it. Uh, if I do do it, you know, these guys at the DOJ are going to put people in prison and, and the company right. will be harmed. I just, like, even if I wanted to, I can't. And right. uh, once they established that reputation, I think it was is pretty key. And so those are among the kinds of things that middle managers, uh, I think, can do and can embrace. The challenge, at least the way I see it, both when I was at DOJ and since leaving, is that um, a lot of times people talk about the tone at the top. Yes. And, and how important that is. And I, I don't disagree with that. The problem I see is oftentimes, like, you know, who, who's at the top depends on where you sit. And, you know, while many people may think of the CEO as the, the sort of the top or the board as the top or the C-suite as the top, the truth is if you happen to work in a particular country, you know, your country manager or, you know, the local sort of the president or, uh, uh, or whoever it may be, or your, your direct boss, that's the tone at the top for the person that's in that position. And so it's not enough to have somebody at headquarters issuing certain, you know, messaging. Uh, it's got to be something that's echoed by and amplified by local leaders uh, and, and middle managers. And that's a critical role. Uh, which is why you know many of the companies that we work with will actually uh, provide messaging that can be used at meetings, just like uh, many of the uh, folks in the energy industry. Safety is just a key function. Right. right. I know that many of the meetings, and I've been in them uh, with some of our clients in the en energy industry, where we start off the meeting talking about where the exits are mm -hmm. and other safety protocols, uh, that people actually have compliance moments that get brought up. And it allows the, the middle managers to deliver a message so that it's the tone uh, at the top, but from whoever your boss is. And that can, that can have a huge impact. And the flip side, by the way, um, is equally important or, or potentially devastating, which is 
if you have all the right messaging from headquarters, but you have local managers or middle managers who are saying they don't really mean that, or that's not how we do business here. They don't understand this region or this business or this city or whatever it may mean. And suddenly that like, you know, messaging that has been worked on, uh, you know, and, and, and considered a great detail at headquarters is now muddled in a way that really can be debilitating to the effectiveness of a compliance program throughout the organization. And I think people often think, and this is, you know, and I've met really smart people who think this, and it's just, a, it's a, if they do it, they don't need to be lawyers, they're just wrong, uh, which is if they think, well, as long as I don't you know, like do it myself, or if I just get someone else and I just don't ask the questions and I don't get any bad answers, it'll all be okay. And unfortunately for people who learn the hard way, they go to prison for that, which is actually, no, it, it does matter uh, that you're involved and you, you sort of choose to be willfully blind or yep, deliberately right. ignorant as the law describes. And so, you know, middle managers who either get the messaging wrong and or think that, well, they're not personally involved in some of these things, people unfortunately will find out pretty quickly that uh, it can be uh, pretty bad. So those are the kinds of things that I see in terms of the importance of middle managers. So with that in mind, tell, tell me what are some of the most common mistakes that you think uh, young managers, young business managers make when they get out in the business world that lands them in trouble? Well, so I, I think the first thing is that, um, and, and I, 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 I've been through counseling uh, for like about seven years. I've been going to a business school talking to people about sort of, you know, what to do and what to think about when they're, when they're in, in these positions. Because yes. people graduate from business school and they think, well, this is fantastic. And I, they're going to go have this, you know, challenging job. They may travel internationally and do this work. And, and that's great. And people are excited about it. And then at some point, you know, somebody will say, we need to do X. And it's at that moment that people need to think to themselves um, about what they're going to do and and what the risks are. Uh, Because as a prosecutor, I used to stand up in front of a jury and I would, uh, in white collar cases, I would say, you know, life is about choices and living with the consequences. And then I would talk about whatever the conduct was. And so I think the challenge, I think, for particularly young business people is they 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 want to make sure they're pleasing their bosses. Uh, right. They want to be sort of, they think it's all sort of teamwork. We're all in it together. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that plus kind of the immediacy of the issue, people sort of have sort of a short-term approach to what could be a long-term problem. Yeah. Uh, and and those tend to be kind of the, 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 the moments when uh, younger business folk need to have access to good guidance. Because I think if someone asks you to smooth over losses or, you know, uh, stuff a channel or, you know, hire a consultant that was recommended by a government official so you'll win some business or, you know, speak to somebody about pricing at another company. These are all the kinds of things that, you know, may not sound like a terrible, awful thing to do in just the immediate moment. Maybe that's the way business is done uh, in a certain place is the way it's described to you and, uh, and the like. But there's got to be some sort of a spidey sense that goes off that says, this doesn't sound exactly right to me. Right. And most good organizations have uh, channels or platforms by which young folk can uh, reach out and get advice right. uh, from compliance, from legal, through a hotline, going to a different manager or supervisor, or going to a supervisor if it's a colleague that's sort of doing something as well. Right, right. Because the truth is that 
that the company doesn't want individuals to engage in criminal conduct. You're not actually part of the team. Well, you may think in that moment you are, but you're not. Uh, and so when the music stops, you don't want to be the person who's made some bad choices. Uh, and by the way, typically, I'll just say this, typically, um, the first thing that people do in, in any kind of criminal activity, any kind of unethical conduct, is not generally some huge leap over, you know, past you know, some bright line rule. It tends to be incremental. Someone does something once and then they do it again and then it gets a little bit bigger. And before you know it, now it's a big problem. Right. It tends to be like that. It's sort of like the water boiling slowly. Uh, and so people need to realize it's that first decision that they need to make, that first dilemma that they need to focus on. And those can be you know, recommendations from a boss or a colleague, someone that you think you trust. But if you think that there's something about it that makes you a little uncomfortable, um, those are the kinds of mistakes. And I tell people, you don't need to be a lawyer to think about the, the you know, sort of the Wall Street Journal test, which is if this wound up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, would this be something you'd be proud about or embarrassed by? Would it hurt the company? Because if the answer is, yeah, it, it might actually embarrass me or hurt the company, then you probably shouldn't be doing it and you should be speaking to somebody in legal compliance to figure that out. And so these are the kinds of mistakes or errors, trying to please bosses, not thinking long-term. And by the way, just thinking like following orders is an excuse. It's not, and it's not a criminal defense either. So we've seen so many changes. Um, what do you think the future holds for the field of ethics and compliance and governance and risk management on the business side? What are, what are, what should business students today be prepared for in the future when they get out? Well, so I think there's some good things and some challenging things. So on the one hand, I think the goalposts are moving in terms of compliance. What met expectations from the government enforcement agencies before, the SEC, DOJ, et cetera, they are much higher today than they were five years ago and certainly 10 and 15 years ago. Uh, and, and that means uh, companies are expected to do more, uh, whether it's do more with less, but at least be smarter about it. Uh, and so the government definitely has higher expectations in terms of compliance, whether that's effectiveness of training, uh, you know, effectiveness of uh, internal accounting controls, uh, the use of technology, uh, the appropriate resources, whether that's technology or people, uh, to achieve uh, an effective compliance program. It's not about just having the program, it's having it be effective. And I really do think that those goalposts are moving. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I do think um, that, you know, the government, you know, expects people to use artificial intelligence and big data to look at and sift through various transactions uh, in an automated fashion to see whether or not they're red flags. Uh, you know, those are going to be expectations, not for every company, but certainly for major multinationals, for publicly traded companies. These are the companies that will come under scrutiny. Right. And uh, they held to account to a pretty high standard. So, so that's both good and bad in some right. ways. Uh, yep. I think generally good because it's moving uh, the industry in the right direction. The challenge I think that people are facing is that matters that would have been resolved through civil or administrative or regulatory action, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly, they, they're investigated criminally now. And, and you know, when, when people sort of think back to, you know, some of the biggest, you know, white collar enforcement cases, you know, in the 1980s, 
you know, Ivan Boski or Michael Milliken, names that probably don't even make sense to anybody anymore for insider trading and the like. I always refer my students to, you know, Wall Street as sort of the, sort of the Ivan Boski example. But you know, those people received like a five-year sentence uh, for it, and which sounds like maybe a lot. The sentences that people are getting today are 12, 15, 20 years in prison. I mean, obviously, you know, some of those sentences have been trimmed for certain people, but for insider trading in, in Manhattan, uh, you know, people are getting very serious sentences. The, the, the highest sentence in the uh, FCPA context is 15 years. The former CEO of a telecom company in Miami received a 15-year prison sentence. And, and where I think the, the problem is with that is that prosecutors, including myself, you know, uh, went after various companies and business executives. And at some point, you know, the, the line goes from being a prosecutor to being a regulator, and there needs to be decisions made about, is this really sort of the appropriate application of criminal enforcement with potential right. prison attached right. to it? And there's a balancing that has to happen. But I think the risk for business students today is that the 80s are sort of seem quaint back then. Mm -hmm. uh, DOJ and FBI and the Internal Revenue Service, which, by the way, we always use because IRS, they can dig around and they can find all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, uh -huh. people are surprised, like, postal. We use the Postal Service. I mean, people, for example, you know, when you're doing white collar cases, the FBI is great, but they want to sort of put the habeas gravis on people. They got guns. They, you know, they want to run around. Right. The IRS guys know how to follow the money. They got like, <laughs> they're like right. the, the green visor. They're scarier in, in some ways than the FBI. <laughs> but, but so you're, you know, as a young business person moving off into the world, it's complicated. There's a lot going on. Things are international in a way that they right. didn't used to be. Things move at a much quicker pace. Uh, you know, sometimes the, sh the, the terrain can shift underneath you. Yeah. And so you really need to have wits about you because if you are engaged in something that seems like maybe it's bad, but you're not really sure, but your boss told you to do it, it's not going to get you out of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of regu uh, regulators. There are a lot of criminal guys running around and there can be some very serious consequences for actions that a decade or more ago would not have resulted in a criminal prosecution. And that's why I think the future of compliance is so important because it helps keep people from getting in trouble. It creates that sort of buffer. Uh, and if people follow the guidance that the company has in terms of policies, procedures, using hotlines or access to legal and compliance if they have questions, it's their best guarantee to avoid, you know, finding themselves, you know, in front of a jury when someone's yeah. talking about, you know, choices and consequences. Yeah. So the stakes are just so much higher today. You just said it uh, in, in one sentence. It took me five minutes to say, yes, that's exactly right. The stakes are much higher. But, so, but what we haven't talked about is why do you think we've seen the stakes go up for the same type of, of offense? Why, why is that occurring? You know, it's interesting. It's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, so I think part of it is that there's been a, uh, a focus that's been increasing uh, on corporate malfeasance uh, through very big, you know, uh, events. So uh, Enron comes to mind, you know, in the early 2000s uh, timeframe, uh -huh. you had sort of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, 
uh, frankly, in which there was a lot of criticism uh, of uh, DOJ in particular for not putting, you know, the heads of banks um, in prison, uh, the CEOs in prison, well, all kinds of criticism uh, for that. And, you know, frankly, I actually, you know, was at DOJ at the time, not particularly involved in, in those kinds of matters. But what I think people sometimes, you know, push for and clamor for, whether it's on Capitol Hill or on Main Street, is, is uh, they assume because bad things happened, it must have been criminal. Mm -hmm. And there's a very important distinction between negligence on the one hand and intentional misconduct on the other. Uh, and, and one is a civil liability and the other has criminal liability attached to it. If it's sort of willful and knowingly, you know, uh, intended to fraud, those kinds of things, well, that puts it into the criminal bucket. But just being wrong, even sort of being negligently wrong, uh, shouldn't. But but that's, uh, you know, I, I think that's a difficult um, component to, to see. And so as, as prosecutors look at whether it's big banks or big multinational corporations or others, um, there is this external pressure that they see from the public sort of demanding that they go after people. And on the one hand, you do want to hold people accountable. Uh, there is an important deterrent message. Yes. But you also need to pull the reins back and make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and that you're pursuing justice. Because sometimes, and when we used to hire young prosecutors, we'd say, you know, it's easy to always ask for the maximum. It's easy to always sort of throw on all these charges. Um, sometimes it takes greater discretion and frankly, you know, uh, chutzpah and bravery to say, you know what, I actually don't think that this is the the, the right case to do that. And here's why. And so, there, there's a tension there on the one hand, trying to do the right thing and be appropriately aggressive uh, to both protect and defend, you know, the, the citizens and the community and the financial network in the U.S. And on the other hand, being so aggressive that you're actually, you know, going after individuals for, for things that maybe you shouldn't be and there are alternative ways yeah. to do it. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I think that's a tension. The last thing I'll say is the, you know, what used to sort of happen internationally in particular used to stay there. And people didn't know about it, right? So years ago, kind of what happened in China stayed in China. Right. Well, that's not true anymore. Mm -mm. Uh, and with, you know, with, with email and text messages and WeChat and, you know, all these different Telegram and you know, WhatsApp, there's a lot of communications. And in part, by the way, if you're a prosecutor, um, because so much business is international, a lot of times people don't talk on the phone because mm -hmm. uh, of time zone differences. Right. So they will say things in an email that they otherwise would have said in a phone call or walking down the hallway. And so the evidence is, is sort of, you can actually gather it. And so, so it, it's created sort of a very complex environment, but also sometimes it's rich with evidence uh, and leads them sort of a paper trail that you might not otherwise have had 10 years ago. Very interesting. Yeah, all true. So Chuck, let me ask you, uh, what are th three main things that you think uh, universities should be doing to better prepare their students to enter the workforce with this evolving, you know, kind of risk profile with the stakes being raised on compliance matters and governance and, and all of that? What are the three things that we can do to better prepare students? Well, first, I think that, uh, you know, to the extent that it is not already a part of the curriculum, it has to be. Uh, ethics and integrity uh, is, is absolutely key to any kind of a, a curriculum, but it needs to be practical. So when you're providing this advice, um, you, you need to be telling students what to expect, what to anticipate, and what to do. Uh, people who are graduating from business school are not graduating from law school. They don't need to know 
all the detail about the elements of a bank fraud case or a cartel investigation or whatever. Um, the, the importance is make sure there's a curriculum, make sure that it's part of the curriculum, make sure that you are giving people practical advice about what to think about. And often what's so key I think about um, uh, when it comes to compliances, it's not, it, does, it shouldn't necessarily be all rules-based. It can be about integrity, about messaging, about making sure that you have sort of a true north compass to what you're doing mm -hmm. and giving people sort of the confidence really to be able to raise their hand as you say, and, and you know, have, find a partner or go and talk to somebody and actually push back because you really need to have that, uh, yeah. I think, is, is you be educated in the, in the process mm -hmm. and then have the confidence and feel, frankly, feel empowered to say, you know what, you know, ethics and integrity matter to me. Uh, this is a hard won you know, reputation I have for it. Uh, I care deeply about it. I also care about my liberty. And I'm going to raise my hand and raise issues if, if need be. Those folks are going to become valuable assets in whatever organization they go and work with. And by the way, ultimately, hopefully lead. And so I, I would say, you know, educate them right, empower them to make the right decisions. And then, by the way, we as a community, as a country, need to support people when they do come forward. Uh, because honestly, it's not easy. Sometimes yeah. if you raise your hand, you may not make yourself popular in the short term, right. uh, but in the long term, people will actually appreciate uh, that you took the right uh, the right approach. Yeah, it's not easy. That's true. That, that That's a whole separate podcast. That's a whole different series of podcasts on how to do that. So we'll catch up on all of that. This has been a great conversation. I really want to thank you for your time and end on some fun questions here. So tell us what you've been reading, uh, watching, or listening to if you listen to podcasts that have been fun, but also have an ethical dilemma attached to them in some way. So we'll start with what have you been reading? Well, so I've been reading a book with my son. Uh, so we read, we try to read a chapter a night uh, uh, called uh, Boys in the Boat, uh, which uh, I don't know if you've read it, but uh, uh, an FBI agent friend of mine recommended it to me. And uh, it's a fantastic, in fact, I have it. I have it right here. Uh, Boys in the Boat. Oh, cool. uh, And it is uh, an, a wonderful book uh, uh, about... Uh, a, cr uh, a group of people um, at the University of Washington uh, in sort of the 1930s uh, that were part of a rowing crew uh, and uh, ultimately ended up going to the Olympics uh, in Germany uh, in the 30s and how sort of a hard scrabble group of boys kind of pulled together as a team uh, to do something that uh, nobody ever expected them to be able to do. Uh, so it's a it's about leadership and teamwork and you know trusting uh, each other and uh, anyway it's it's about all those things and and sort of the the ability to uh, sort of dream big and then accomplish it. So it's a wonderful book. Uh, so that's what I've been reading. Um, so in terms of podcasts, I, I think uh, this may be my first podcast. I, I don't uh, I don't listen to podcasts, so I have to listen to this one. It'll be yeah. my first uh, first <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of what I'm watching, what, um, boy, you know, I have just been going through all sort of the Netflix, yeah. uh, Perry Mason, I think is actually, I've been watching that just recently, just started, uh, but Netflix, everything from, you know, Tiger King to, yeah. you know, uh, don't mess with cats. I won't sort of get into the full name, but there's, uh, anyway, there are lots of, net, anything on Netflix, I guess, is what I watch. <laughs> Very good. All right, Chuck, this has been fabulous. Thank you very, very much for spending this time with us on the podcast. It's been great. Great. Well, thanks so much. All right. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.